Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They're sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here is your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello, and welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and we have another great show today with a fantastic guest. They just keep getting better and better. Uh, so today's show is with Julian Negron, and we're going to be talking about education, not incarceration. So I want to give you a little introduction on Julian Negron. She was born in New York City, went to college in L.A., and ended up working in the music industry in the 60s. She was married twice to entertainers until her life was derailed by her own drug use, and and we're talking about some big entertainment tainers here. Uh, John Densmore from The Door, Doors and Chuck Negron from Three Dog Nights. Uh, she knows the ravages of drug addiction well as she lost both her mother and her sister to drug overdoses. Her youngest son has struggled with drug dependence for most of his adult life. Uh, she has been in personal recovery since 1985. Uh, one of the best things that I, I, I love having my guests on that are also in recovery. They make fantastic guests. Uh, she's found a career in substance abuse counseling. Uh, she's a certified addiction specialist since 1990, supervising and training residential addiction treatment staff for more than two decades. Beginning with her participation in the Los Angeles Overdose Task Force, she has been active for more than a decade in advocating for change or punitive drug policies, reducing stigma, and since her own incarceration, prison and sentencing reform. Her passion is harm reduction, as is mine, decriminalization, and ending the mass incarceration of drug offenders. Her goal is to move the issue of drug dependence out of the hands of law enforcement and courts to the professionals who are best suited to work with substance use disorder as a public health issue. Julia is co-founder of the Moms uh, United to End the War on Drugs. She is also a board member of A New Path, Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing, uh, which is a 501c3 nonprofit advocacy organization and a board member of the Floridans for Recovery, a recovery advocacy nonprofit. Since moving to Florida, she organized the Suncoast Harm Reduction Project, and Julia is currently advocating for Nalox naloxone access legislation in Florida. So hopefully we're going to have enough time to talk about all these things in the show. But Julia uh, Negron, thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Hey, Jacob. Thank you. So, you know, you have a really interesting history, one that, you know, a lot of people uh, in past dream of kind of in the music industry, but it also uh, turned a little bit dark with drug, drug use. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about the drugs and the music? What was the lifestyle like? Well, it's interesting. I saw that question um, when you emailed me some questions, you know, and I have a lot of friends that were in the same situation and worked in the music industry or were involved or married to musicians, or were musicians that didn't go down the same road 
I did. I don't want people to ever think that just rock and roll or music is, you know, a prerequisite for it as being (laughs) like high out of your mind or anything else. It's really not like that. But there are some of us that kind of didn't make it out without falling into those traps, you know, and my ex-husband Chuck and I um, were fairly notorious in our day, and um, we're both in recovery now, but it's interesting. So are a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> you know, so are a lot of people. One of the 29 amazing, years, congratulations. One of the most amazing things when I first got sober is to walk into a room and uh, run into just about everybody I knew in the music business, you know, sitting in there as well. Yeah. There, there certainly has been a, a movement towards recovery. I know I had the Musicians Assistance Program on with uh, Harold Owens to talk about how they are um, assisting musicians. Uh, you, we talk about uh, Jim Morrison's overdose, and you know, until recently, um, it was considered heart problems, and they're thinking more now that it might have been uh, heroin. Can you talk a little bit about that incident? Where yeah, were you? First with of all, I want to say big shout out to Harold Owens. He's one of my heroes in this world, <laughs> and um, he has helped so many people. I just love an organization that actually does help put people in treatment or help them. Yeah. Um, and MAP and Music Cares is is all about that. They're so good. Um, yes. As for Jim, I wrote a, an article a couple of years ago about for overdose, International Overdose Awareness Day, and I mentioned Jim in it and um, his overdose. And it's the first time I had really written that, it, you know, like put it on paper in black and white, because um, for many years people kind of preferred to... Uh, gosh, I don't even know what to say. There's so many stories out there, including he's still alive. You know, nobody would ever really talk about what really happened. You know, and the truth is nobody knows exactly what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, it seems pretty clear to me in retrospect that that's exactly what happened, that it was some kind of overdose and more than likely from snorting heroin along with drinking, which is just so common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I experienced it in you know in my own personal lives. I was lucky enough not to in overdose myself. In one of your myself, own personal but, lives, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you I, have I've, more I've, than one personal life. Yeah, it's and you know, and I've uh, had friends who have also passed to this. And, and Jim Morrison, when he passed, I believe he was only twenty-seven years old, wasn't he? He was mm-hmm. pretty young. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it again, we're seeing this movement, uh, you know, in in the this this beginning of the the 21st century and the move to to opiates now um really moving as we see the the prescription pills uh ballooning up and the heroin problem really really increasing uh, well it kind of cycles though doesn't it because i mean heroin yeah. was all the rage um in the i want to say early 70s mm-hmm. when i got involved with it um it was pretty it was everywhere and uh, then for a while, it, it seemed to settle down a little bit, and now it's back, you know, and part of that could be the new uh, crackdown on pill mills and things like that. But um, I think it's been here before. It's always been here. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and it's it, like you said, it, it comes in cycles. So going back to that last cycle in the '70s, you know, and and I don't want to dwell on your past too much because you're doing so much for advocacy and prevention. Uh, but I, I want do you have a, a story for our listeners, maybe uh, about one of your experiences with any one of the bands that you're with, either the Doors, Almond Brothers, or Three Dog Nights, uh, oh. substance abuse, and how it kind of affected you, maybe one that they'd find interesting. Um. Gosh, <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, you know, there's a million stories. You know, when you're out on the road and, and um, it's exciting and there's so many complex, shall we say, people involved. I just remember the first time John, uh, when we were first seeing each other, he took me out on the road and um, we got to the airport and uh, there was Jim passed out under a bench and the road manager had pushed two big cigarette urns in front of him so he couldn't get out. Just leave him passed out there till the plane left. You know, and, and there were, it were always situations like that. Um, and I don't know if they're funny stories or not, but, you know, it's definitely an alternative lifestyle. So, and uh, with that alternative lifestyle, I you know remember reading a few articles that said you know you and Chuck uh, Negron from Three Dog Nights had a pretty good relationship with all the drug use. What do you you know attribute that to? You know, making it through those those years in the substance abuse. Um, we well, I attribute it to us having a re- a pretty good relationship. Um, <laughs> I don't dismiss one minute of our. 12 years together um, and say that that was because of drug use we were together or anything like that. You know, we were a family. We were married. We had two boys. My oldest son, Barry, um, was three when we got married finally. And um, then we had another son, Chuck, who's actually Chuck the third. And uh, we were a family and we lived like a family in a house you know, with laundry, with dinners, and, and everything else. It, you know, it's so funny. You run into people in the program that hear your story and go, oh, I wish I'd partied with you. It wasn't a party. You know, there was no yeah. party. Yeah. It was just regular life. And um, unfortunately, once you become dependent on some kind of drug that you started out maybe thinking it was going to be a little bit of a party, once you're mm-hmm. dependent, then you just need to do that like a diabetic would use insulin or something. You're just trying to be normal and maintain. And both Chuck and I were trying to be good parents and uh, have a family. You know, there wasn't anything really bizarre or weird going on other than the things, of course, that happened because of the drugs. But our lifestyle was one of, of trying to be a family. Yeah, and, you know, I, I experienced the exact same thing without, you know, the rock and roll lifestyle, I guess, if, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, um, that, you know, me and my fiancé, we've been together for 15 years. We went through nine years of opiate dependency, four and a half years of IV use, and it wasn't about partying and having fun. It was just about functioning on a day-to-day basis and trying to figure right. out how to get out of that right. cycle. Now, so, you know, it led us down some really dark roads, um, you know, to be living in a house and have little kids and a family and and have a bunch of crazy stuff happen around you. I mean, when we lived in Laurel Canyon, I uh, was the one that went down the street one morning and found the four people on Wonderland Avenue dead that were murdered there. And the, you know, remember in the Wonderland murders, the John Holmes murders, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and so that became like a huge part of our life in that we had to, 
work with homicide detectives, and I was a prosecution witness in the John Holmes trial, and it was on TV, and there were always detectives around the house questioning, and oh my God, you know, what a freaking nightmare. Yeah. But, and, you know, and- that definitely goes out, that that classifies as outside of normal family life, you know, and most families don't get themselves put in those kind of situations. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that it's so insidious on how the, the usage kind of pulls you in and, and attaches you, you know, with those negative behaviors. And even if you're holding everything together, it seems like the people around you that are on the substances may not be able to, and, you know, it eventually leads to repercussions. What was the turning point that made you decide enough was enough and decide to get clean in 1984? Well, it's interesting because I never really decided enough was enough. You know, it was kind of um, out of control in that, you know, Chuck and I both had uh, some money going into our marriage, and so it took us a very long time and a lot of using to, to literally go through everything we had, you know, and there were times when we'd... Um, or Chuck would sell an apartment building and we'd get a big chunk of cash or something, you know, some investment would get sold and, and we'd just run through the money, you know, and, and towards the end, we were just barely holding our head above water. And by that, I mean, we still lived in a house and had a car and, um, you know, all the investments were pretty much gone and, it, things were getting harder and harder, and, and yet, and yet, still, when I went into treatment in 1985, uh, my thinking was just to um, manage, to figure out how to manage so that I wasn't dependent on heroin and could stay on methadone or something like that. You know, I just wanted to do that because it was too fearful for me to think about being mm-hmm. on nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I had been on something for so long and so dependent that that the idea of functioning as a parent or as a human being was just like so foreign to me. And um, when I went into treatment, Jacob, I was in a hospital and in a hospital for three full months, 30 days of those in detox. So, I mean, I had really good care. Yeah, and slowly, they don't do that anymore. Right, they don't do that That's... anymore. And slowly, 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 the the feeling that I could maybe actually survive without anything in my system seemed to be working, but I had to be there that really long time. I had to be comfortable, you know, for it to work at all. And even so, I went home, and Chuck was still using at that point, and as much as I was trying, I was going to meetings and everything, you know, the two of us together, um, I relapsed, like, almost immediately and checked myself back into hospital for another two months. So in 1985, collectively, I spent five months in a hospital, not a residential rehab, not a sober living, but a hospital. Um, And while I was there at Cedars uh, in Los Angeles, we'd walk over every morning to the log cabin, and I started to kind of get into, you know, I engaged in the community there, and it made it a lot easier for me. You know, but it took all that time to reach that comfortable place and to engage, and and it did break up our marriage. That when I got sober and Chuck didn't, you know, and he used for another six years after I got sober. So yeah. that's the sad part of it. Sure, it, and he, there, there's unfortunately, you know, sometimes people that that we can't help out of the cycles. And as a certified intervention specialist, um, you know, I I always say. 
uh, we can't want it more than them. And, and there are some people with everything that we do, um, you know, we can do all the right things. They really have to want it. Um, well, I, you know, I can only disagree a tiny bit in that I didn't really want it when I got there, you know, but if you're, if you stay where your feet are for a while, you know, sometimes sure. it'll creep up on you. And that's a good thing if you can get people to hold still for a minute. Yeah. In it, my opinion. Yeah, I got certified as an interventionist by Johnson Institute, too, back in the late 80s. But in those days, we used to do interventions that were kind of free as a service of um, a hospital chemical dependency unit. And so we were just that was just part of our job, kind of. Sure. It was not um, a freestanding profession like it is now. Well, and and we got to take a quick commercial break here. But going uh, into the commercial break, I, you know, I remember you just mentioned that you know you were fearful of not being able to do anything for the rest of your life. And you know, one thing for me in my early recovery, what I had to do is you know really take it one day at a time and say. It's not for the rest of my life, but it is going to be for today. And on that, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more with Julian Negron. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Jacob Jansen. Uh, during the break, I was talking with Julia about uh, rock star lifestyles and how she had hers. I, in a way, had my own uh, being a hedge fund manager in my early 20s, uh, making a lot of money at a young age. And doing that kind of led me down a bad path uh, with a big ego and eventually to some of my first incarcerations and arrests. Um, so, Julia, coming back, my first question to you is why is our current system failing as far as our punitive drug policies and mass incarceration of nonviolent drug offenders? Well, you just said it all there, didn't you? It's a punitive policy. You know, it makes no sense. You know, if we truly believe that this is some kind of disorder, and I think there's, you know, it would be crazy for me to try to detail all the evidence that's out there. I think that is the understanding, that it's some kind of disorder. You can get arguments on whether it's a disease or this or that, um, but it's a, some kind of medical disorder. And if we really believe in that humanistic kind of scientist, the scientific approach to addiction treatment that we talk about, why are we still using punitive methods to try to coerce people into treatment? You know, or even coerce them into what good behavior? I don't know. You know, the whole incarceration thing just kind of makes me crazy. That's kind of where I started to change my own belief system. You know, in the early '80s, when I uh, first went to school for counseling and, and became a counselor at a big expanded in-hospital uh, chemical dependency company. You know, it was very much the Minnesota model, and you referred people to AA, and that was kind of it. It it was only through my own son's trials and tribulations that, as a mother, I started to think outside the box, like, because for me, hitting bottom was unacceptable. You know, I don't believe we should allow people to hit bottoms. That may be very controversial with some people, but I don't believe it. I don't, for a minute, think that deprivation... And um, that kind of pain really lures people into recovery. If anything, I think mm-hmm. it just makes everything so much worse and certainly so much harder if you get involved with the criminal justice system. I agree. <laughs> You, you know, and I can speak to uh, my own personal experiences. And, uh, you know, I was talking with my parents the other day, and the, I was probably incarcerated 10 different times, probably did four months in county jails, nine months in work release. And um, the only time I ever made it uh, was the last stint because I had a 10 and a half month clean time break. I had treatment uh, before I went in. But any other experience prior to that, using was the first thing that I did when I walked out. I went in and met more connections and had more opportunities to use and uh, watched somebody overdose about two days after being uh, in jail because they didn't have the treatment help. They didn't get the support when they got out. They went back to using and, and overdosed. You, you yeah, are part... Well, you know, once we decided that uh, drug use is criminal, 
behavior, then all drug users are criminals. And that means everybody. You know, that means every white, upper-middle-class kid in the suburbs. That means everybody. And so you're throwing all these people in jail um, or prison where there are actual bad, violent people mm-hmm. and saying, you know, uh, oh, clean up your act or we'll lock you up. You know, I mean, it, it's just kind of ridiculous and stupid. And personally, I, you know, I watched my son go through this. Um, it was like shocking to me because I will never forget being, I was speaking at an Al-Anon meeting once and I had some parents come up to me in California and say, my son was using and we want to save his life. So we had him arrested and he was a two striker so that when they had him arrested on that third strike, he was now serving 25 to life in a California prison. And I was like, so taken aback, like, are you kidding me? Yeah. This is the choice you have this is the choice you made it was like when did we decide that law enforcement uh should be our primary treatment <laughs> professionals i mean when did we decide that how did that come about you know and if you really dig down it comes about in all kinds of kind of bad ways as stigmatizing uh disenfranchising, marginalized uh, people of color. I mean, they're, they're all racist things. There's so many, like, bad things that drives that kind of thinking. So, I mean, we've been working pretty hard, me and a lot of um, my colleagues, to change that thinking. Yeah, and you have a group uh, that, that you started called uh, Moms United to End the War on Drugs. Can you talk a little bit about that and what well, that program Well, actually, is? my mentor, Gretchen Bergman, started it. And, okay, um, okay. I always call myself a co-founder because I was sitting there when we <laughs> when we came up with this idea. But um, she's the executive director of A New Path, which is Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing, and I've been involved with them for a lot of years now, and I'm on the board there. Um, and the idea was that there aren't too many places for moms to go to, to get other in, kinds of input and information. You know, I mean... Routinely, parents end up in Al-Anon or some kind of support group like that, which is which is pretty narrow. There's a pretty narrow focus there, mm-hmm. um, and there also is a lot of stigma involved for parents. I mean, for parents to feel so isolated and feel like that they're killing their kids if they help them, you know, all these things mm-hmm. were starting to feel really like sickening to me because I was going through this with my own kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Moms United movement had to do with not only ending the obvious things like the mass incarceration of nonviolent drug offenders and the border, the killings in Mexico and border violence that the drug war uh, perpetrates, but also, um, you know, ending the stigma and just the punitive drug policies and and the thinking. And I hate to even use the word stigma because it's not harsh enough. The discrimination that people struggling with substance use disorder and their families feel. You know, you see it over and over again. If my kid had cancer, people would be at the door with casseroles and there'd be a fundraising drive and, um, you know, everybody would be, like, uh, compassionate and gathering around. You know, if your kid has a substance use disorder, it's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
what what needs to change? So we wanted to, the point is we wanted to change that thinking, you know, and really have people take a look, you know, and we came up with a bill of rights that pretty much it allows us to nurture our offspring if we feel like it, you know, and start learning about harm reduction and looking at other options in terms of treatment and recovery. Sure. If somebody wanted to find out more information on Moms United and the War on Drugs, how would they do that? Well, our our website is momsunited.net, but we're also easy to find out on Facebook. There's a number of, um, there is a main Moms United group, and uh, which has like 8,000 or 9,000 members now, a lot of people. And there's some, in Florida, I started my own little closed group um, just so we could have deeper conversations. So there's a Florida Moms United page on Facebook, and uh, I think there's a Michigan Moms United page, and maybe even Texas Moms United page. There's a number of them. But, you know, if you get on the main Moms United page and ask, we can direct you to any, um, almost any state. I think we have representatives now in like 30 states. It is a nationwide movement. Sure. And, and I think we covered this briefly, but what needs to change in order to start solving the current drug problem and how do we make that change? Well, I'm a big fan of harm reduction, you know, and because I've been a treatment professional for years and because I'm recovering and because I have a kid in the game, you know, in my mind, there's nothing incongruous about all of that and harm reduction strategies, you know, and I don't understand why more people in the recovery community don't step out on that and, um, you know, start using strategies that save lives. Like in Florida, we're working on a naloxone access bill because we have found that offering naloxone, which is not a controlled substance, a really harmless, essentially uh, life-saving drug to people that they can have at home or have, you know, wherever, wherever is going to save lives, you know, and there's just no rehab if you're dead. So, uh, you know, it makes sense. Let's save lives first. Let's just do that. I completely agree. I had um, the addiction uh, or ARC, the AIDS Resource Council on. They have LifePoint, which is the needle exchange. Um, uh-huh. They actually trained me in naloxone uh, hydrochloride or the Narcan shots about three months ago, and I'm so glad I had it because about a month and a half ago I had to use it. Um, so it, uh, I've well, isn't used... It, isn't that good? Isn't it empowering? I it mean, is. you know, it's... I've heard some stuff from people... When you start talking to people about this, they go, oh won't, oh, won't addicts just think that they can just use more now and they'll always get saved? That's a crazy kind of logic. Um, the, the way I was that... Narcan back in my using day, and you, you wake up in withdrawal. It is not a pleasant experience. And if anything, it, it actually makes you think yeah. and makes you, you know, could be part of the continuum that you're going through to get to recovery. I mean... People don't use more because they think there's no locks on sure. around. Well, the, it's the way that the opposite. I'm afraid of it to this day. Like, don't yeah. bring it near me. The, the, and the way that uh, LifePoint put it that I really loved is that it's not tough love if you don't use it. It's no love. You know, if the kid's dead, they can't get the help and the treatment. And the person whose life that I saved went into treatment right after that, and he's still doing right. well a couple of weeks out now. Uh, so. 
if anything, it might people give people that shot, that epiphany to make that change and realize that something's, you know, wrong. But certainly no one wants, you know, no current using opiate addict wants that because it puts them immediately into withdrawals. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, and it, I think it is empowering for families. I th- you know, I think the, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but probably about half of people that overdose, overdose in in the home, you know, mm-hmm. like it, they're still living with their parents or someone else is there. And um, I've, I've had naloxone in my house for, ugh, since, I don't know, 2007, since, since the LA overdose project. And um, it, it just, it feels good to have it. It makes you feel like you have some, you know, overdose is a medical emergency. Why would you not have this mm-hmm. if anybody at risk is in your house? And that, doesn't mean just drug users. That means anybody on pain medication. Um, I've had small children living with me. My grandkids lived with me for a while. Sure. You know, they get into medication. They can get into medication. Um, it, there's a million reasons to have it and no reason to not have it. You know, and I've been trained. Uh, I'm I'm a trainer and I've been trained and, and I have it. And um, it's just something that everybody should have. You know, and the truth is overdose deaths have now overtaken car accidents as the yes. number one preventable accidental death in this country. And um, it's kind of funny to watch the news go on and on about Ebola and if 4,000 people have died from Ebola and stuff. It's like we lost, what, 16,000 people? We lose 100 a day? Yeah, it's like 110 United a day, States. something like that. It's going on. You know, up, where's yeah. the outrage? You know, part of my problem with that is that I think people um, out there don't think those lives are worth saving. And that's been our mantra down here in Florida. Every life is worth saving. Absolutely. The the, the uh, people that I work with that have um, addiction issues or problems, some of the most intelligent, driven, kindness people you've ever met that, you know, made some bad choices and, and are now trying to figure out how to get out of that cycle. Um, yeah. You you, you mentioned know, that, that's true for most people, but you know, in harm reduction, we kind of do things that promote wellness and health for people and dignity without having expectations around it. You yeah. know, I would love for everybody that comes to a needle exchange to uh, say, "Give me a brochure on some treatment options or something," but sure. or not. You know, and if they're not going to take a brochure, then you give them a cup of noodles and some warm socks and and you hope that they're going to come around again because that may be their only contact with Mm. someone that cares about them and their health. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and there's not enough of us, i got to tell you that. Well, Um, that's for sure. Yeah, you started an uh, or you're a. I don't want to say you started again, but you're part of an organization called A New Path: Parents for Addiction Treatment Healing. What is uh-huh. that about? Oh well, parents, uh, parents for Addiction Treatment Healing is a nonprofit um, based out of San Diego, and it started. It's been 15 years now, and I mean, one of the first things that Gretchen, our leader, got involved with was chairing the California Prop 36 campaign, which is the landmark treatment instead of incarceration uh, law in California. And, um, you know, the people in California that have had a shot at uh, treatment opportunities through the court through Prop 36 will tell you that's a good law and needs to be funded better and stay on the books, but we're real proud of that. And um, since then, we worked on a number of things with PATH. I mean, just about, well, there's something all the time 
in the last year, uh, Pat has been very involved with what they call the Ask Mom campaign, which is, um, you know, an information and advocacy campaign for moms to uh, get trained to use naloxone and have some say over their kids' wellness or health. And I say kids just because the large majority of the overdoses we see still fall in the in the kind of younger category. Sure. How can people me, find... everybody's a kid right now, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. How, how can people find more information on A New Path? Um, well, we also have a website, anewpathsite.org. So, and you know what? Uh, for me, finding a new path was the first place I found where I could go, um, and my beliefs were not um, attacked. You know, for for being a mother that was uh, encouraging her son to stay with it and not kicking him to the curb. You know, it, it was a really good place for me because I, I was getting real tired of people telling me that you should be. You should leave your son on skid row and he'll get tired and hungry enough and get sober, which I found was not the case. He almost died too many times. And, uh, you know, we were the parents that did everything, did everything, you know, tried throwing him out, tried uh, sending him to fancy Malibu places, gave him a car, took away a car. We had him kidnapped. I mean, we did it all. You know, and what I found was that none of those things necessarily worked and and that my decision for myself was, you know, I I need to be true to my own pro-social values as a mother and support my son and support any positive change that he makes. And that's, you know, where I've pretty much stayed since then. But A New Path was the place where that kind of thinking was honored. And the people that are involved with A New Path are just wonderful. We have such a broad kind of coalition of people from NAMI and um, all different, from Californians United for Responsible Budget, which has a lot to do with prison reform and uh, the members that are part of the ACLU. So, I mean, we have a lot of, a broad coalition of people that all have the same kind of um, thinking that we should be ending the stigma and the punitive policies. Sure, and and as uh, a recovery coach, um, you you said you had as a parent you had to honor any positive movement forward, and that's certainly what I do as a recovery coach and uh, practice harm reduction with a lot of my clients wherever they are in whatever stage, and it's about. Um, Helping them recognize the positive movements forward and, and giving them some something to some happiness to attach onto. But we got to take a quick commercial break again from our sponsors, and when we come back, more with Julian Negron. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. 
combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and we are with Julia Negron talking about education, not incarceration. And before we left uh, for break, we were talking about um, some of the terms, harm reduction, uh, and you have a program called the Suncoast Harm Reduction Project. What is that? And can you explain to our listeners, what does harm reduction mean to you? Well, harm reduction really is meeting people where they're at. You know, in all everybody's counselor training, they learn now about motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. Uh, but it, but to really meet people where they're at and give them dignity, you you do have to look at a harm reduction model because it it's a respectful practice of collaborating with people, you know, to, to assist in any positive change. And like I said, for me, that means without expectations, you know, without, without condemning their lifestyle in any way. You know, you're actually just looking at the person and what can I do to help you rather than, you know, oh, you need to live life my way or think like I do or even be in recovery. You know, it has none of those elements. It's all about helping people where they are and assisting them. So what is the Suncoast Harm Reduction Project? Well, what happened when I arrived in Florida um, is that I started to look around and see, what can I do here? You know, because I'd been so active in California, and I one by one I started running into these mostly mothers um, that were either dealing with... Um, 
offspring that had problems or had lost um, kids to overdose. And, I mean, I found it kind of stunning because it was kind of so on the down low. People didn't really talk about it, and they'd never heard of naloxone. So I started kind of meeting up with these women, and we started talking, and we kind of decided to make a project of it. And so here on the Gulf Coast, we started our little harm reduction project, and it's actually moved quickly and fast. I mean, we have been attracting some really talented uh, women and men to help with, you know, kind of getting the word out that there are strategies we can use to be saving lives and, you know, allowing people that second chance so that they might find recovery. But essentially, let's start by just saving lives. So once we started talking about naloxone, the women that I work with, boy, they got educated and smart on the whole thing really fast. And we've been talking to legislators and and we're real hopeful, fingers crossed, that in 2015 we'll have a naloxone access bill here in Florida. So you just described a little bit how you got involved with some of that naloxone legislation, but if somebody else wanted to start this process in another state or be involved in getting naloxone legislation passed, what's the best way to do that? Is there a good way to start? Or there, You know, social media is really good in this day and age. I mean, if you're looking like uh, for contacts and coalitions in your state, I mean, start by looking on Facebook or Twitter or or uh, any of that, or, or or just Google it, you know, Google your state and the word naloxone. Um, for me, the, the cream of the crop is the Harm Reduction Coalition, and not only, and their website is harmreduction.org, okay. and they have a ton of information as well as uh, a legislative guide to, um, you know, for uh, for drafting legislation, essentially, that you can kind of use as guidelines if you're talking to legislators in your state or, or, poli- or stakeholders in any way, you know, because there's no reason that every state shouldn't have this. And we're in the deep south here in Florida, but one by one we've had states um, come, you know, change and have naloxone access laws implemented. In North Carolina they have one, in Georgia they have one, um, I think Kentucky. I mean, a lot of states you know, coming from California, I think we're all progressive in California, so we've, we've had a law sure. for a while now, but um, boy, there's plenty of work to do down here. Except on I, licensing the counselors out in California. They're a little bit behind on that. So On what? <laughs> on licensing the AODA counselors over in California. Oh, yeah, that's been going on for years. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of been going on for years. But, you know, that's a whole other topic. I don't want to take up too much time on that. But, you know, there really needs to be some clinical sophistication and uniform standards sure. um, the- for people working with uh, vulnerable populations, shall we say, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like a little worried at times about the treatment industrial complex, you know, that people throw up a residential rehab with kind of clinically unsophisticated people that are essentially like AA sponsors and, and they don't really offer people the care they should have. Now, I know around here in the Midwest, in our area of the country, there's a lot of police forces as first responders that are now being equipped with naloxone. Uh, now, when you say you know, you're fighting for legislation in Florida, is that for the police officers, the general purpose access? or um, uh, are they... For me, it would be everybody. I mean, okay. anybody that wants to go to any community org that, that is doing a training, um, you know, anybody. 
And uh, we started in Los Angeles with a pilot program that essentially equipped homeless people with naloxone kits. And what that pilot program found is, like, not only do they care about each other, they really will save each other's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really effective even right at the street level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for mothers to find out about this, family members, you know, to find out about this, they were like, well, what? We want that, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, I find that true everywhere I go. You know, you get a little blowback from people that don't quite understand, but generally speaking, everybody wants to save lives. And and I, mean, I hope wanna, everybody wants to save lives. No, and I want to commend two schools in our area. I did two presentations, one at New Berlin and Muskego, and uh, they were the second and third high school, from what I understand, in the state that uh, brought free naloxone training into the high school for parents after they saw this presentation um, to say, you know, if you think there's an issue, we will train you, you know, in this and give it to you absolutely free. And I thought that that was just such a, a cool move in the right direction for a well, high school. Almost every that. community organization that I know that does naloxone and training does it free. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they may ask for a donation if you have, but sure. um, because most of these places are equipped through grants to um, buy the naloxone, mm-hmm. which has been going up in price. So uh, there's kind of there's not a big harm reduction infrastructure in Florida, but we're hoping to change that. I mean, we need community organizations where people can get naloxone, get testing for hep C, which is coming into, like, that's going to be a huge crisis mm-hmm. these days, and um, have have access to resources, you know, and information, and, and a little bit of health care, and like I said, a cup of noodles and some warm socks, and I mean, there's no reason that we shouldn't have this going on. So, um, law enforcement... You know, absolutely, they should have it. Mm -hmm. And most law enforcement uh, organizations want it. Um, But I, I think everybody should have it. You know, and as I talk with more and more police officers, especially the younger generation coming in, um, in my area of the country, I just hear over and over again, I'm sick of this problem. What we're doing isn't working. How do we solve this problem? And, and looking mm-hmm. to me saying, arrest, we can't arrest our way out of the situation. I've heard that out of the mouths of police officers speaking on stage multiple times in the last well, you know, year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and unfortunately, um, coming from a recovery background, you run into so many people that, like, they saw one guy somewhere at an NA meeting say that jail saved his life, you know, and so they think yeah, that's yeah. the way. And they don't realize, like in the state of California where I came from, they release 10,000 people a month from California prisons. You know, what happened to the other 9,999 guys, you know, that that it didn't happen to work for? You sure. know, I mean, it's not a realistic view. Jail, generally speaking, makes things worse. And i got to tell you, one of the things um, that really bothers me is in my own son's recovery. You know, he can be in recovery, but Mm -hmm. he will forever have six felony arrests and be an ex-con two times. And it it renders him virtually unemployable, Mm -hmm. and that's for life. You know, he can be 80 years old and live it, you know, in the... You know, in some assisted living, I can and relate, he, he yeah. won't be able to serve on a jury or, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll be a felon for the rest of my life because of exactly. nonviolent drug possession. Yep. Exactly. You know, so the things we do sometimes do more harm. You know, um, how can we make the 
make people worse and think that that's the way to treat a disorder. <laughs> so, you know, and, and we're, we only have a few more minutes left on the show here before I'm going to get the closing, but the word decriminalization scares a, a lot of people. Can you explain how decriminalization is different than legalization um, and why de- decriminalization I don't think decriminalization should scare anybody. You know, the whole concept of decriminalization is not um, that anybody's pro-drugs or anything like that. It it has to do with not using the criminal justice system as, you know, the treatment providers for people that have problems. Um, We often point to the Portugal model where they they no longer arrest people but refer them and, uh, you know, have them meet before a health committee or something. And uh, they don't don't put people in jail anymore. And they've seen infectious disease go down and drug use actually go down, and, and it's been very helpful. I mean, you have to think about decriminalization more. Do you really want to put 700,000 people a year in jail for weed? You know, do you really want to spend your tax money that way and then not have funding for programs that need to be funded? Um, Decriminalization for me is like an easy one. Legalization, in theory, I get it. It's Mm -hmm. hard for a lot of people to wrap their brain around full legalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but in theory, I certainly get it to re- eradicate black markets and have everything taxed and regulated and whatever. And, and it's a big civil rights and human rights issue that people should be able to do what they want with. Um, but decriminalization is, is is a different thing. Mm-hmm. It really is, and I don't. Um, I kind of don't get that. I kind of go get why anybody has any problem with that. I guess people (laughs) that have a problem with that believe that uh, courts are the best uh, people to assess someone's substance use disorder and drug courts are the best way to deal with that and jail is the best, is is what solves the problem. Sure, and I think we tend to forget prohibition of alcohol and and what happened during that time because it was a bit before many of our times, so... Um, right. And, and, you know, decriminalization is just a saner approach mm-hmm. um, to the drugs and, and the drug problem. You know, so, I mean, for me, that's a slam dunk. Like all parents, it's like, you know, you, I work with a lot of people that are for full legalization of drugs, and, and I do get it in theory. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to wrap your brain around. And yet in Vancouver and, and some other places where they have heroin-assisted treatment and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, they've had a lot of uh, success. So, I mean, I think being a mother, more than anything, drove me to really educate myself and find out as much as I could about everything. Yeah, you know, if you have works. a kid that's in trouble, it's kind of like that movie Lorenzo's Oil, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. where you're going to sit in a library and read everything and find out everything and talk to everyone and then put it all in the mix and, and find what works you know, and go for that. And I mean, that's been a huge driver for me. And I I think that's why we end up with so many moms groups uh, moving these kind of advocacy movements, kind of like prohibition was ended by moms. You know that, right? No, I did not know that. I learned uh, you know, day. it probably was moms <laughs> that got it in in the first place, but moms that had it undone in the end. You know, moms started rising up and, and seeing what was happening because of black markets and, mm-hmm. you know, the growth of organized crime and moonshine killing people. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's very similar. 
Yep. Do you have any final message for our listeners, Julia? We're getting about to the end of the hour. I guess uh, the biggest message I have for people when I talk to them is please be thoughtful. You know, think things through. Because every time we pass a law, there are so many unintended consequences. We really have to be thoughtful. You know, the pill mill um, problem in Florida, I can see, was the deaths were decreased greatly by clamping down on the pill mills. But what they didn't think through, in my opinion, is what are you going to do with these people that are dependent? Where are they going to go? And consequently, we've had an uptick in heroin use in Florida and an uptick in heroin overdose deaths. And now we're talking about something that it really is unregulated and you don't know what you're getting and you know, black market heroin, it's like, who, ha- who has any idea, you know, what you're really getting? And um, it's just so, so dangerous. So, I mean, we kind of didn't think that through. There should have been more attached to that to deal with the consequences okay. of legislation. And I think that applies across the board. And, Julia, that's, that's all the time we have today. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. I'm your host, Jacob Jansen, and you enjoy life. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.